While I have you, I'd love to remind you about our new premium channel for the Sleepy Bookshelf, where you can listen to all our content completely ad-free and receive some bonus stories in between our main releases. If you are interested, you can subscribe in your preferred podcast player. Just follow the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's lovely to have you here with me tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before that, take some time to settle in. Find a cozy spot in bed, pulling your blankets around you, and rest your head heavily on your pillow. Imagine yourself sinking into your mattress and release any hold you have currently on any part of your body. To clear your mind now, take a nice deep breath into your belly. Feel your tummy fill with air, and when you exhale, let it all go. Lovely. When we last met, Harry and Professor Hardwig had begun their ascent up to the crater of the volcano Snaefels, led by their guide Hans and the Icelandic porters. It was a long day of hiking on unstable terrain in high altitudes and cold weather. They finally reached the summit by 11 p.m., and Harry ventured a longing look at the Icelandic sun setting low on the horizon before finding a spot to sleep. The next morning, they descended into the crater of Scartaris, exactly as specified in the ancient text by Anna Saknusum, and were greeted by three pits. Professor Hardwig was beside himself with excitement, which was further intensified when he found, in the same runic text, carved into the stone, the name of that same famous scientist. The next day, however, and for the following two days, the weather was completely overcast. This meant, to Harry's delight, that they could not follow Saknusum's directions to begin their journey into the earth by taking the pit indicated by the shadow cast by the peak of Scartaris in the last days of June. By the 28th, however, the clouds cleared and a definite shadow could clearly be seen landing on the central pit. And that's where we pick back up tonight. The Professor, Hans, and Harry beginning their descent into the center of the earth at precisely 1.13pm 
on the 28th of June. So close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 14 The Real Journey Commences Our real journey had now commenced. Hitherto, our courage and determination had overcome all difficulties. We were fatigued at times, and that was all. Now we were about to encounter unknown and fearful dangers. I had not as yet ventured to take a glimpse down the horrible abyss into which, in a few minutes more, I was about to plunge. The fatal moment had, however, at last arrived. I had still the option of refusing or accepting a share in this foolish and audacious enterprise, but I was ashamed to show more fear than the Ida duck hunter. Hans seemed to accept the difficulties of the journey so tranquilly, with such calm indifference with such perfect recklessness of all danger that I actually blushed to appear more frightened than he. Had I been alone with my uncle, I should certainly have sat down and argued the point fully. But in the presence of the guide, I held my tongue I gave one moment to the thought of my charming Gretchen, and then I advanced to the mouth of the central shaft. It measured about a hundred feet in diameter, which made about three hundred in circumference. I leaned over a rock which stood on its edge and looked down. My hair stood on end. My teeth chattered. My limbs trembled. I seemed utterly to lose my center of gravity while my head was in a sort of whirl. There is nothing more powerful than this attraction towards an abyss. I was about to fall headlong into the gaping well when I was drawn back by a firm and powerful hand. It was that of Hans. I had not taken lessons enough at the Frelseskirk of Copenhagen in the art of looking down from lofty eminences without blinking. However, few as the minutes were during which I gazed down this tremendous and even wondrous shaft, I had sufficient glimpse of it to give me some idea of its physical conformation. Its sides, which were almost as perpendicular as those of a well, presented numerous projections, which doubtless would assist our descent. It was a sort of wild and jagged staircase, 
without banister or fence. A rope fastened above near the surface would certainly support our weight and enable us to reach the bottom. But how, when we had arrived at its utmost depth, were we to loosen it above? This was, I thought, a question of some importance. My uncle, however, was one of those men who are nearly always prepared with expedients. He hit upon a very simple method of obviating this difficulty. He unrolled a cord about as thick as my thumb and at least 400 feet in length. He allowed about half of it to go down the pit and catch in a hitch over a great block of lava which stood on the edge of the precipice. This done, he threw the second half after the first. Each of us could now descend by catching the two cords in one hand. When about 200 feet below, all the explorer had to do was to let go one end and pull away at the other when the cord would come falling at his feet. In order to go down farther, all that was necessary was to continue the same operation. This was a very excellent proposition, and no doubt a correct one. Going down appeared to me easy enough. It was the coming up again that now occupied my thoughts. Now, said my uncle, as soon as he had completed this important preparation, let us see about the baggage. It must be divided into three separate parcels, and each of us must carry one on his back. I allude to the more important and fragile articles. My worthy and ingenious uncle did not appear to consider that we came under the denomination. Hans, he continued, you will take charge of the tools and some of the provisions. You, Harry, must take the possession of another third of the provisions and of the arms. I will load myself with the rest of the edibles and with the more delicate instruments. But... I said, our clothes, this mass of cord and ladders, who will undertake to carry them down? They will go down of themselves, my uncle replied. And how so? I asked. You shall see, he said. My uncle was not fond of half measures, nor did he like anything in the way of hesitation Giving his orders to hands, he had the whole of the non-fragile articles made up into one bundle, and the packet, firmly and solidly fastened, was simply pitched over the edge of the gulf. I heard the moaning of the suddenly displaced air and the noise of falling stones. My uncle, leaning over the abyss, followed the descent of his luggage 
with a perfectly self-satisfied air and did not rise until it had completely disappeared from sight. Now then, he said, it is our turn. I put it in good faith to any man of common sense. Was it possible to hear this energetic cry without a shudder? The professor fastened his case of instruments on his back. Hands took charge of the tool, I of the arms. The descent then commenced in the following order. Hands went first, my uncle followed, and I went last. Our progress was made in profound silence, a silence only troubled by the fall of pieces of rock, which, breaking from the jagged sides, fell with a roar into the depths below. I allowed myself to slide, so to speak, holding frantically on the double cord with one hand and with the other, keeping myself off the rocks by the assistance of my iron-shod pole. One idea was all the time impressed upon my brain. I feared that the upper support would fail me. The cord appeared to me far too fragile to bear the weight of three such persons as we were with our luggage. I made as little use of it as possible, trusting to my own agility. I did miracles in the way of feats of dexterity and strength upon the projecting shelves and spurs of lava, which my feet seemed to clutch as strongly as my hands. The guide went first, I have said, and when one of the slippery and frail supports broke from under his feet, he had recourse to his usual monosyllabic way of speaking. In about half an hour, we reached a kind of small terrace formed by a fragment of rock projecting some distance from the sides of the shaft. Hans now began to haul upon the cord on one side only, the other going as quietly upward as the other came down. It fell at last, bringing with it a shower of small stones, lava and dust. A disagreeable kind of rain or hail. While we were seated on this extraordinary bench, I ventured once more to look downwards. With a sigh, I discovered that the bottom was still wholly invisible. Were we then going direct to the interior of the earth? The performance with the cord recommenced, and a quarter of an hour later, we had reached to the depth of another 200 feet. I have very strong doubts if the most determined geologist would, during that descent, have studied the nature of the different layers of earth around him. I did not trouble my head much about the matter. Whether we were among the combustible carbon 
Silurians or ancient soil I neither knew nor cared to know. Not so the inveterate professor. He must have taken notes all the way down, for at one of our haunts he began a brief lecture. The farther we advance, said he, the greater is my confidence in the result. The disposition of this volcanic strata absolutely confirms the theories of Sir Humphrey Davy. We are still within the region of the primordial soil, the soil in which took place the chemical operation of metals becoming inflamed by coming in contact with the air and water. I at once regret the old and now forever exploded theory of a central fire. At all events, we shall soon know the truth. Such was the everlasting conclusion to which he came. I, however, was very far from being in humor to discuss the matter. I had something else to think of. My silence was taken for consent, and still we continued to go down. At the expiration of three hours, we were, to all appearance, as far off as ever from the bottom of the well. When I looked upwards, however, I could see that the upper orifice was every minute decreasing in size. The sides of the shaft were getting closer and closer together. We were approaching the regions of eternal night. And still, we continued to descend. At length, I noticed that when pieces of stone were detached from the sides of this stupendous precipice, they were swallowed up with less noise than before. The final sound was sooner heard. We were approaching the bottom of the abyss. As I had been very careful to keep account of all the changes of cord which took place, I was able to tell exactly what was the depth we had reached, as well as the time it had taken. We had shifted the rope 28 times, each operation taking a quarter of an hour, which in all made seven hours. To this had to be added 28 pauses, in all 10 hours and a half. We started at one, it was now therefore about 11 o'clock at night. It does not require great knowledge of arithmetic to know that 28 times 200 feet makes 5,600 feet in all, which is more than a mile. While I was making this mental calculation, a voice broke the silence. We have reached the end of our journey, said the worthy professor in a satisfied tone. What? The interior of the earth, said I, slipping down to his side. No, you silly fellow, said he, but we have reached the bottom of the well. 
and I suppose there is no further progress to be made, I hopefully suggested. Oh yes, he said. I can dimly see a sort of tunnel which turns off obliquely to the right. At all events, we must see about that tomorrow. Let us sup now and seek slumber as best we may. I thought it time, but made no observations on that point. I was fairly launched on a desperate course, and all I had to do was go forward, hopefully and trustingly. It was not now even quite dark, the light filtering down in the most extraordinary manner. We opened the provision bag and ate a frugal supper, and each did his best to find a bed amid the pile of stones, dirt, and lava which had accumulated for ages at the bottom of the shaft. I happened to grope out the pile of ropes, ladders, and clothes which we had thrown down, and upon them I stretched myself. After such a day's labor, my rough bed seemed as soft as down. For a while, I lay in a sort of pleasant trance. Presently, after lying quietly for some minutes, I opened my eyes and looked upwards. As I did so, I made out a brilliant little dot at the extremity of this long, gigantic telescope. It was a star without scintillating rays. According to my calculation, it must be beta in the constellation of the little bear. After this little bit of astronomical recreation, I dropped into a sound sleep. Chapter 15 We Continue Our Descent At eight o'clock the next morning, a faint kind of dawn of day awoke us. The thousand and one prisms of the lava collected the light as it passed and brought it to us like a shower of sparkles. We were able, with ease, to see objects around us. Well, Harry, my boy, said the delighted professor, rubbing his hands together. What say you now? Did you ever pass a more tranquil night in our house of Konigstrasse? No deafening sounds of cartwheels, no cries of hawkers, no bad language from boatmen or watermen. Well, uncle, we are quite at the bottom of this well, said I. But to me, there is something terrible in this calm. Why, said the professor, one would say you were already beginning to be afraid. How will you get on presently? Do you know that as yet we have not penetrated one inch into the bowels of the earth? What can you mean, sir? was my bewildered and astonished reply. 
I mean to say that we have only just reached the soil of the island itself, he answered. This long vertical tube, which ends at the bottom of the crater of Snaefels, ceases here just about on a level with the sea. Are you sure, sir? I asked. Quite sure, he replied. Consult the barometer. It was quite true that the mercury, after rising gradually in the instrument, as long as our descent was taking place, had stopped precisely at 29 degrees. You perceive, said the professor, we have as yet only to endure the pressure of air. I'm curious to replace the barometer by the manometer. The barometer, in fact, was about to become useless as soon as the weight of the air was greater than what was calculated as above the level of the ocean. But, said I, is it not very much to be feared that this ever-increasing pressure may not in the end turn out very painful and inconvenient? No, said he, we shall descend very slowly and our lungs will be gradually accustomed to breathe compressed air. It is well known that astronauts have gone so high as to be nearly without air at all. Why then should we not accustom ourselves to breathe when we have, say, a little too much of it? For myself, I'm certain I shall prefer it. Let us not lose a moment. Where is the packet which preceded us in our descent? I smilingly pointed it out to my uncle. Hans had not seen it and believed it caught somewhere above us. Now, said my uncle, let us breakfast and break fast like people who have a long day's work before them. Biscuit and dried meat washed down by some mouthfuls of water flavoured with Shidem gin, was the material of our luxurious meal. As soon as it was finished, my uncle took from his pocket a notebook destined to be filled by memoranda of our travels. He had already placed his instruments in order, and this was what he wrote. Monday, June 29th, chronometer, 8 hours, 17 minutes, morning, barometer, 29.6 inches, thermometer, 6 degrees, 43 degrees Fahrenheit, direction, east, southeast. This last observation referred to the obscure gallery and was indicated to us by the compass. Now, Harry, said the professor in an enthusiastic tone of voice, we are truly about to take our first step into the interior of the earth, never before visited by man since the first creation of the world. You may consider, therefore, 
that at this precise moment, our travels really commence. As my uncle made this remark, he took in one hand the Ruhmkorff coil apparatus, which hung around his neck, and with the other hand, he put the electric current into communication with the worm of the lantern, and a bright light at once illuminated that dark and gloomy tunnel. The effect was magical. Hans, who carried the second apparatus, had it also put into operation. This ingenious application of electricity to practical purposes enabled us to move along by the light of an artificial day amid even the flow of the most inflammable and combustible gases. Forward, said my uncle with determination. Each took up his burden. Hans went first, my uncle followed, and I going third. We entered the somber gallery. Just as we were about to engulf ourselves in this dismal passage, I lifted up my head and through the tube-like shaft saw that Icelandic sky I was never to see again. Was it the last I should see of any sky? The stream of lava flowing from the bowels of the earth in 1219 had forced itself a passage through the tunnel. It lined the whole of the inside with its thick and brilliant coating. The electric light added very greatly to the brilliancy of the effect. The great difficulty of our journey now began. How were we to prevent ourselves from slipping down the steeply inclined plane? Happily, some cracks, abrasions of the soil and other irregularities served the place of steps, and we descended slowly, allowing our heavy luggage to slip on before the end of a long cord. But that which served as steps under our feet became, in other places, stalactites. The lava, very porous in certain places, took the form of little round blisters, crystals of opaque quartz adorned with limpid drops of natural glass and suspended to the roof like lusters seemed to take fire as we passed beneath them. One would have fancied that a genie of romance was illuminating their underground palace to receive all those who strayed too close. Magnificent, glorious, I said in a moment of involuntary enthusiasm. What a spectacle, uncle. Do not admire these variegated shades of lava which run through a whole series of colors, from reddish-brown to pale yellow by the most insensible degrees. And these crystals, they appear like luminous globes. 
you are beginning to see the charms of travel, said my uncle. Wait a bit until we advance further. What we have as yet discovered is nothing. It would have been a far more correct and appropriate expression had he said, let us slide, for we were going down an inclined plane with perfect ease. The compass indicated that we were moving in a southeasterly direction. The flow of lava had never turned to the right or the left. It had the inflexibility of a straight line. Nevertheless, to my surprise, we found no perceptible increase in heat. This proved the theories of Humphrey Davy to be founded on truth, and more than once I found myself examining the thermometer in silent astonishment. Two hours after our departure, it only marked 54 degrees Fahrenheit. I had every reason to believe from this that our descent was far more horizontal than vertical. As for discovering the exact depth to which we had attained, nothing could be easier. The professor, as he advanced, measured the angles of deviation and inclination, but he kept the result of his observations to himself. About eight o'clock in the evening, my uncle gave the signal for halting. Hans seated himself on the ground the lamps were hung to fissures in the lava rock. We were now in a large cavern where air was not wanting. On the contrary, it abounded. What could be the cause of this? But this was a question which I did not care to discuss just then. Fatigue and hunger made me incapable of reasoning. An unceasing march of seven hours had not been kept up without great exhaustion. I was really and truly worn out, and delighted enough was I to hear the word halt. Hans laid out some provisions on a lump of lava, and we each supped with keen relish. One thing, however, caused us great uneasiness. Our water reserve was already half exhausted. My uncle had full confidence in finding subterranean resources, but hitherto we had completely failed in so doing. I could not help calling my uncle's attention to the circumstance. And you are surprised at this total absence of springs? He said. Doubtless, said I. I'm very uneasy on the point. We have certainly not enough water to last us five days. Be quite easy on that matter, continued my uncle. I answer for it that we shall find plenty of water. In fact far more than we shall want. But when? I asked. When we once get through this crust of lava, 
he replied. How can you expect springs to force their way through these solid stone walls? But what is there to prove that this concrete mass of lava does not extend to the center of the earth? I inquired. I don't think we have as yet done much in a vertical way. What puts that into your head, my boy? Asked my uncle mildly. Well, it appears to me that if we had descended very far below the level of the sea, we should find it rather hotter than we have, said I. According to your system, said my uncle. But what does the thermometer say? Scarcely 15 degrees by Romo, which is only an increase of nine since our departure, I answered. Well, and what conclusion does that bring you to? inquired the professor. The deduction I draw from this is very simple, I explained. According to the most exact observations, the augmentation of the temperature of the interior of the Earth is one degree for every hundred feet, but certain local causes may considerably modify this figure. Thus, at Yakutsk in Siberia, it has been remarked that the heat increases a degree every 36 feet. The difference evidently depends on the conductibility of certain rocks. In the neighborhood of an extinct volcano, it has been remarked that the elevation of temperature was only one degree in every five and 20 feet. Let us then go upon this calculation which is the most favorable, and calculate. Calculate away, my boy, my uncle said. Nothing easier, said I, pulling out my notebook and pencil. Nine times 125 feet makes a depth of 1125 feet. Archimedes could not have spoken more geometrically, he replied. Well, I asked. Well, according to my observations, said he, we are at least 10,000 feet below the level of the sea. Can it be possible? I mused. Either my calculation is correct or there is no truth in figures, he answered. The calculations of the professor were perfectly correct. We were already 6,000 feet deeper down in the bowels of the earth than anyone had ever been before. The lowest depth to which a man had hitherto penetrated was in the mines of the Kitzbühel in the Tyrol, and those of Württemberg. The temperature, which should have been 81, was in this place only 15. This was a matter for serious consideration. Chapter 16 The Eastern Tunnel The next day was Tuesday, the 30th of June, and at six o'clock in the morning, we resumed our journey. 
we still continued to follow the gallery of lava, a perfect natural pathway, as easy of descent as some of those inclined planes, which in very old German houses served the purpose of staircases. This went on until 17 minutes past 12, the precise instant at which we rejoined Hans, who, having been somewhat in advance, had suddenly stopped. At last, said my uncle, we have reached the end of the shaft. I looked wanderingly about me. We were in the center of four cross paths, somber and narrow tunnels. The question now arose as to which was wise to take, and this of itself was no small difficulty. My uncle, who did not wish to appear to have any hesitation about the matter before myself or the guide, at once made up his mind. He pointed quietly to the eastern tunnel, and without delay we entered within its gloomy recesses. Besides, had he entertained any feeling of hesitation, it might have been prolonged indefinitely, for there was no indication by which to determine on a choice it was absolutely necessary to trust to chance and good fortune. The descent of this obscure and narrow gallery was very gradual and winding. Sometimes we gazed through a succession of arches, its course very like the aisles of a Gothic cathedral, the great artistic sculptors and builders of the Middle Ages might have here completed their studies with advantage. Many most beautiful and suggestive ideas of architectural beauty would have been discovered by them. After passing through this phase of the cavernous way, we suddenly came about a mile farther on upon a square system of arch, adopted by the early Romans, projecting from the solid rock and keeping up the weight of the roof. Suddenly we would come upon a series of low, subterranean tunnels which looked like beaver holes or the work of foxes through whose narrow and winding ways we had literally to crawl. The heat still remained at quite a supportable degree. With an involuntary shudder, I reflected on what the heat must have been when the volcano of Snaefels was pouring its smoke, flames, and streams of boiling lava, all of which must have come up by the road we were now following. I could imagine the torrents of hot, seething stone darting on, bubbling up with accompaniments of smoke, steam, and sulfurous stench. Only to think of the consequences, I mused, if the old volcano were once more set to work. 
I did not communicate these rather unpleasant reflections to my uncle. He not only would have not understood them, but would have been intensely disgusted. His only idea was to go ahead. He walked, he slid, he clambered over piles of fragments, he rolled down heaps of broken lava with an earnestness and conviction that was impossible not to admire. At six o'clock in the evening, after a very wearisome journey, but one not so fatiguing as before, we had made six miles southwards, but had not gotten more than a mile downwards. My uncle, as usual, gave the signal to halt. We ate our meal in thoughtful silence and then retired to sleep. Our arrangements for the night were very simple. A traveling rug, in which each rolled himself, was all our bedding. We had no necessity to fear cold or any unpleasant visit. Travelers who bury themselves in the wilds and depths of the desert, who seek profit and pleasure in the dark forests, are compelled to take it in turn to watch during the hours of sleep. But in this region of the earth, absolute solitude and complete security reigned supreme. After a night's sweet repose, we awoke fresh and ready for action. There being nothing to detain us, we started on our journey. We continued to burrow through the lava tunnel as before. It was impossible to make out through what soil we were making our way. The tunnel, moreover, instead of going down into the bowels of the earth, became absolutely horizontal. I even thought, after some examination, that we were actually tending upwards. About ten o'clock in the day, this state of things became so clear that, finding the change very fatiguing, I was obliged to slacken my pace and finally come to a halt. Well, said the professor quickly, what is the matter? The fact is, I'm dreadfully tired, was my earnest reply. What? said my uncle. Tired? After a three hours walk? And by so easy a road? Easy enough, I dare say, but very fatiguing. But how can that be when all we have to do is go downwards? He replied. I beg your pardon, sir, said I. For some time I have noticed that we are going upwards. Upwards, said my uncle, shrugging his shoulders in disbelief. How can that be? There can be no doubt about it, I responded. For the last half hour the slopes have been upward. And if we go on in this way much longer, we shall find ourselves back in Iceland. My uncle shook his head with the air of a man who does not want to be convinced. I tried to continue the conversation. He would not answer me, 
but once more gave the signal for departure. His silence, I thought, was only caused by concentrated ill temper. However this might be, I once more took up my load and boldly and resolutely followed Hans, who was now in advance of my uncle. I did not like to be beaten or even distanced. I was naturally anxious not to lose sight of my companions. The very idea of being left behind, lost in that terrible labyrinth, made me shiver. Besides, if the ascending path was more arduous and painful to clamber, I had one source of secret consolation and delight. It was, to all appearance, taking us back to the surface of the earth. That of itself was hopeful. Every step I took confirmed in me my belief, and I began already to build castles in the air in relation to my marriage with Gretchen. About twelve o'clock, there was a great and sudden change in the aspect of the rocky sides of the gallery. I first noticed it from the diminution of the rays of light which cast back the reflection of the lamp. From being coated with shining and resplendent lava, it became living rock. The sides were sloping walls, which sometimes became quite vertical. We were now in what the geological professors call a state of transition in the period of Silurian stones, so-called because this specimen of early formation is very common in England, in the counties formerly inhabited by the Celtic nation known as Silures. I can see clearly now, I said. The sediment from the waters, which once covered the whole earth, formed, during the second period of its existence, these schists and these calcareous rocks. They're turning our back on the granite rocks and are like the people from Hamburg who would go to Lübeck by way of Hanover. I might just as well have kept my observations to myself. My geological enthusiasm got the better, however, of my cooler judgment, and Professor Hardwig heard my observations. What is the matter now? He said in a tone of great gravity. Well, said I, do you not see these different layers of calcareous rocks? and the first indication of slate strata. Well, he said, what then? We have arrived at that period of the world's existence when the first plants and the first animals made their appearance, I explained. You think so? he asked. Yes, look, I pointed. I induced the professor with some difficulty to cast the light of his lamp on the sides of the long, winding gallery. I expected some exclamation to burst from his lips. I was very much mistaken. 
the worthy professor never spoke a word. It was impossible to say whether he understood me or not. Perhaps it was possible that his pride, he did not like to own that he was wrong in having chosen the Eastern Tunnel. Or was he determined at any price to go to the end of it? It was quite evident that we had left the region of lava and that the road by which we were going could not take us back to the crater of Mount Snaefels. As we went along, I could not help ruminating on the whole question and asked myself if I did not lay too great a stress on these sudden and peculiar modifications of the Earth's crust. After all, I was very likely to be mistaken, and it was within the range of probability and possibility that we were not making our way through the strata of rocks, which I believed I recognized piled on the lower layer of granitic formation. At all events, if I am right, I thought to myself, I must certainly find some remains of ancient plants and it will be absolutely necessary to give way to such indubitable evidence. Let us have a good search. I accordingly lost no opportunity of searching and had not gone more than about a hundred yards when the evidence I sought for cropped up in the most incontestable manner before my eyes. It was quite natural that I should expect to find these signs, for during the Silurian period, the seas contained no fewer than 1,500 different animal and vegetable species. My feet, so long accustomed to the hard and arid lava soil, suddenly found themselves treading on a kind of soft dust, the remains of plants and shells. Upon the walls themselves, I could clearly make out the outline, as plain as a sun picture, of the fucus and the lycopods. The worthy and excellent Professor Hardwick could not, of course, make any mistake about the matter, but I believe he deliberately closed his eyes and continued on his way with a firm and unalterable step. I began to think that he was carrying his obstinacy a great deal too far. I could no longer act with prudence or composure. I stooped on a sudden and picked up an almost perfect shell, which had undoubtedly belonged to some animal very much resembling some of the present day. Having secured the prize, I followed in the wake of my uncle. Do you see this? I said. Well, said the professor with the most imperturbable tranquility, it is the shell of a crustaceous animal of the extinct order of the trilobites. Nothing more, I assure you. Do you draw no conclusion from it? said I, much troubled at his coolness. I know, my boy, what you would say, and you are right. 
perfectly and incontestably right, said he. We have finally abandoned the crust of lava and the road by which the lava ascended. It is quite possible that I may have been mistaken, but I shall be unable to discover my error until I get to the end of this gallery. You are quite right as far as that is concerned, I replied, and I should highly approve of your decision if we had not to fear the greatest of all dangers. And what is that? he asked. Want of water, I answered. Well, Harry, my dear, it cannot be helped, he said. We must put ourselves on rations. And on he went. <laughs>